Hi, I'm Karim Khan and I'm the editor of British Journal of Sports Medicine. This is the third in the podcast series from BJSM. I'm speaking with Paul McCory about the implications of the Zurich Concussion Conference for the junior doctor. Hi, I'm with Paul McCory, the uh, co-editor of the uh, BJSM Supplement on Concussion. And uh, Paul, together with Yuzhi Dorak, played a huge role in um, making the concussion conference in Zurich possible. Now, we have a separate podcast uh, that gave an overview of the concussion supplement, but we're just going to do a brief intro if people are listening to this uh, supplement alone. So, Paul, um, if you can let's let the listener know um, about your um, work and uh, what your background is, and then we will jump into talking about how um, the consensus statement should influence work of junior doctors. Um, well, I'm a neurologist and sports physician from Melbourne, Australia, a former team physician with a, with a national football team in my country, and I've been involved in concussion research for the last 20 years or so. So through my background in both sports medicine and neurology, I developed an interest and then did a PhD in the field and then have pursued various lines of research um, in that regard. And again, just briefly, um, we'll direct people back to the first podcast about the official sort of structure. But um, if you just want to sort of acknowledge your colleagues for a moment and uh, just direct them back to the previous podcast, that'd be great. Sure. The supplement, um, sorry, the consensus statement that arose out of the Zurich meeting, which was held in November last year, it was a formal NIH-style consensus meeting um, involving... 28 different individuals, um, all of whom contributed expertise and um, their time um, in making recommendations and guidelines in this field. They're all listed um, in on the supplement itself. Um, these are all experts in their field, none of whom had any conflict of interest um, uh, that, that they felt would in interfere with the um, the recommendations, but the consensus process itself has been a a long process over a number of years with a number of iterations. We initially met in Vienna in 2000, then Prague in 2004, and now Zurich in 2008. And each time, um, this gets more elaborated and more um, detailed in terms of the recommendations and so forth. This current meeting was a formal consensus meeting, so a number of topics were worked out before the meeting. Each of those topics were then subject to a systematic review. That evidence was presented at a public meeting in Zurich, um, which was widely attended by many people from all parts of the world. And then the panellists, who I mentioned, then gathered separately um, and went through each and every one of the topics um, to provide recommendations, which were summarised in the um, Zurich statement, which has been published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine Supplement and also co-published by 14 other journals around the world. The, the British Journal has also published all the background papers, the systematic reviews and so forth, so people can look in more detail if they want the evidence uh, behind uh, the topics that were discussed. And the outcome paper also includes some sideline tools, both for the layperson and also for medical assessments that we felt uh, would contribute to the overall management. Nice summary, Paul. And for those of you who listened to the first podcast, thanks for bearing with us. And now we're going to jump in to having Paul really give a masterclass on uh, the junior doctor. So we're thinking of the person who's graduated in the last couple of years, they're 
pretty new to sports medicine. It could be a family doctor. They're working with teams and athletes. Paul, thinking of that doctor, um, what should she or he take home from the consensus statement in Zurich? Well, I think the first thing to, to take home is how do you diagnose and, ha- and assess the injury? Now, to that end, we've provided these tools which give very clear advice <coughs> Excuse me, in terms of the symptoms uh, that people experience, the sorts of um, memory and orientation effects that the injury can have, and also the impairments of balance. So the tool itself actually runs through how to assess each and every one of those areas, provides a scoring system um, through which people can actually make the diagnosis. So we feel this is a very important step. This has evolved over time from our initial work in the field, uh, which was presented in Prague. A number of validation and sensitivity studies were done, and these were discussed at the meeting. Um, and the abstracts are also available through the British Journal of Sports Medicine website. Um, and we evolved the tool based on that research. So, giving medical staff a very clear, um, prescriptive means of assessment, and also that assessment tool can be used part, as part of the future medical record, we felt was a very useful step. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, having made the diagnosis, what other tests are useful? And we went through the role of things like neuroimaging, such as CT and MR scan, balance assessment, neuropsychology, genetic testing, um, and the various biome, to really summarise the role of these things. And again, Probably the balance, um, the clinical balance assessment, such as the BESS, which is called the Balance Error Scoring System, developed in the US, and the various neuropsychological screening tests that have been marketed um, all have a role to play in this area. And the third angle is having made the diagnosis, having done the relevant tests, how do you then return somebody to play? And there are certain issues there depending on people's expertise, experience and what resources are available to people that may influence that uh, process. But the core information or the core approach is that people need to recover symptomatically and cognitively before they should be returned to playing or training. If people have any symptoms or any mental impairment, either at rest or with provocative exercise, and they should be fully resting, both physically and cognitively, until they've recovered. We've presented a graduated return to play protocol where people go through a series of steps um, with light aerobic exercise, sport-specific exercise, non-contact training drills and so forth before they get to full contact practice and ultimately playing. And in the paper, we've given examples of each stage of rehabilitation and what to look for if people develop skill, uh, if symptoms or impairment during those phases and they would simply drop down to the lower level until they'd recovered and then progress further. It's important to emphasise for uh, anybody involved in athlete care that each person's an individual and will recover at his or her own rate. The graduated stepwise rehabilitation protocols give you the structure to follow but nobody goes through it at the same rate as the next person so we can't sort of say one day for this one day for that we really have to be governed by the person's symptoms and their own recovery um, profiles 
So the Xeric statement really gives guidance in the diagnosis and assessment, the investigation, and also the uh, management of the condition. One of the um, probably big changes this time around is that we felt that uh, rather than sort of separate out people time-wise, as we did with the previous um, paper from Prague, where we separated out symptom, a simple and complex concussion based on a seven-day time window, this time what we've said is that everybody should be managed in a similar way. However, there were a number of modifying factors uh, that we listed which we felt would indicate that people needed um, more assessment or um, uh, may need a longer period of time to recover. These would influence the, the recovery time frame. And these included th things like the number of symptoms people have, the more symptoms, the worse the injury, the severity of the symptoms, and we've, we've got a um, scaling approach on the SCAT tool, which allows people to record the severity as well as the presence of symptoms. Um, other modifiers included loss of consciousness more than one minute. Uh, somebody's had a convulsion associated with the injury. People who have multiple concussions over a short space of time. Um, those who have repeated concussions occurring with progressively less impact. Um, children and adolescents, and we'll say more about that in a moment. And then other medical problems that may influence the recovery, such as the presence of a learning deficit, uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, migraine, uh, or on medications such as psychoactive drugs, which may influence the symptoms. So we listed a whole range of these, these things which need to be taken into account in the management and subsequent return to play, um, which then enables anybody reading their statement to really sort of consider these as part of the history that they may take and to decide whether any of those may influence the, the, uh, their individual management. So it's a, it's a very broad statement in those regards, but probably the SCAT tools, the sport, con uh, sport concussion assessment tool, really gives the, the guts of it in the sense of a stepwise process of assessment, a scoring form, and as I said, this can be also be used as part of the medical record um, and used as, as follow-up as well. So in a nutshell, that, that's what the consensus document is about. Let's keep it really practical for the junior doctor. I've um, here at the sideline with my team and uh, I've got the SCAT too, um, which presumably I would use afterwards though in the office, right? So just take me through that, um, what happens when the player has a concussion and uh, what's, the, what's the recommendation from the Zurich group? Uh, with the scat, yeah, and just well, in general, just the approach. So we're just a young doctor, and uh, you know, I've read a few books, but um, I just want to make sure I'm doing what the Zurich people think I should be doing. So what okay. should I do? Well, the scat tool is the tool that you use in the assessment. It's basically four pages. Um, there is a pocket scat, which is the lay person's on-field diagnosis card, um, but the scat two tool itself is what medical staff would use. The first page just includes um, a place to record the name, the team, date of injury and, and so forth, just the demographic things which are important in medical records and gives some um, instructions as well. It then moves straight on to go through the symptoms and it lists 
approximately 22 symptoms um, with a scaling, a zero to six scaling um, thing in terms of severity. So um, this then gives you a pretty standard checklist in terms of the sort of symptoms people would experience. And by scoring them with a number, it means that when you come back and assess people down the track, you can ask them, is the symptom still present? But more importantly, has it changed? Has it got better or worse? You'd hope that over time, if you repeatedly measure people, that they would recover and the symptoms would become progressively less severe and then disappear. Having recorded the symptoms, <coughs> um, there are then some important tools that are used in the diagnosis of all traumatic brain injuries, such as the Glasgow Coma Score and the Maddox Questions. And these are simply baseline measures to follow um, over time if people are improving or um, or not um, and these are standard sort of emergency department tools. The next step is to measure the brain function whether people's orientation, memory, attention and so forth is intact because th this is often the only abnormality that people have. Their physical examination may be normal but they may well be in a state of amnesia or have an intentional problem. So it runs through through a pretty standard um, a uh, series of aspects looking at orientation, immediate memory, concentration, delayed memory and so forth. These are all the features of what's known as the SAC, the Standardised Assessment of Concussion that Mike McRae and Jim Kelly developed a number of years ago. So the entire SAC is included within the SCAT. So by doing the whole assessment you get that assessment um, which people in America particularly will be familiar with um, as part of the ultimate um, examination. The SCAT obviously includes other aspects such as symptoms and balance that the SAC doesn't, but nevertheless for those um, particularly American trainers and physicians and so forth who are familiar with the SAC, um, it gives the advantage of being able to calculate this as part of the deal. Having been through the um, um, cognitive or mental assessment, it then runs through some basic physical examination tasks such as a balance examination and a coordination assessment. Once you've finished all these three broad areas you have an overall score um, which is scored out of a hundred uh, which then gives you an idea of the state of um, play. The way it's scored um, if somebody's completely normal and, and scores 100% um, on all these things, they would essentially have a zero score. And if somebody was impaired on every single aspect of things, they would have a score of 100. So it gives an idea of the severity as well. The last page of the SCAT includes some basic information on things to watch for, the red flag sort of symptoms that people might be worried about in terms of potential deterioration and it gives a, a summary of the return to play recommendations, the various stepwise um, rehabilitation strategies. There's then a form to record serial assessment so when you're doing this assessment on a number of occasions you can write down the score in the boxes and, and see whether people are improving. And finally uh, the very bottom of the card which is capable of being copied and torn off is a head injury advice card to give to the person when they go home which just um, runs through the important things for any care or, or parent or so forth to watch for and information about when they're going to be reviewed and so forth. So it's pretty much a, a complete um, standalone 
um, tool that, cover, that covers all aspects of the diagnosis and management um, uh, and provides some, some handy additional things, as I said, such as a head injury advice card. So we see it as a sort of all-in-one um, tool, which can be used as part of the medical record as well. So even if you know nothing about the, the condition, you can still follow the, the uh, approach and come up with a, a fairly comprehensive assessment of the condition. Yeah, thanks, Paul. It really is very nice and um, just underscoring that this is available in 14 journals as part of the free material that's, that's widely available. So um, you've done a nice... And, and, Go on. And also it's probably worth mentioning that um, FIFA and the IOC... Um, who've co-sponsored the meeting have also undertaken to have it translated into a number of languages um, for people in different parts of the world. Oh, brilliant. And it's nicely set out, the colours work and uh, the SAC, you were saying how the SAC score is very clear there on page four of, of this uh, document. So you guys have done a great job of the knowledge translation um, that we talked about in the first uh, podcast. Um <laughs> Paul, you're going to say something, and I want to ask about the timing of this. Yeah, and I think I'd just like to acknowledge that, um, um, particularly FIFA and Jerzy Dvorak, the chief medical officer for FIFA, he he made available to us the graphic designers and so forth um, that work with that with FIFA itself to really uh, produce a very neat, uh, well laid out tool, as you say. So it it took quite a lot of work on their behalf, and they they undertook that. Um, um, through their own offices, which is fantastic. So I'd just like to acknowledge their particular role in that regard. Uh, for sure. And Yuji's uh, been a great icon of sports medicine and, and really done a lot for patients uh, through football's uh, Football for Health, which um, he talks about in the, uh, the June BJSM. I think it is a uh, little plug there for BJSM. I can do that. Mm. Um, so... Now, Paul, just about the scat. So um, not at the sideline, though, right? The person's got concussed and then just take me through the immediate steps what I do on the sideline when I see the person go down. Um, if you see the person go down, the key issue is firstly um, is uh, is really basically first aid on the sideline. Um, it's the, the ABCs of first aid. Um, whether somebody's conscious or not conscious, you want to make sure that their airway, their breathing, their circulation is all intact. They're free from any environmental um, influences, you know, such as they may be on a racetrack or they may be in a situation where other footballers are about to tread on them. So you deal with the sort of basic ABCs of first aid, first of all. The next thing is you want to make sure they don't have a cervical spine injury, so you need to take all the precautions in that regard. Following that, you want to make sure there's no other injury that needs acute treatment, an eye injury, facial injury and so forth and once you've ruled out all those sort of basic first aid issues then the next thing is to assess the concussion now if somebody's unconscious it's straightforward they need to be removed uh, appropriately and dealt with if they're conscious but uh, impaired then you can use some of the basic um, quick memory questions such as the Maddox questions in that regard those are included on the pocket scat card um, which just highlights symptoms, the Maddox questions, and a quick balance task as a way of doing a quick diagnosis. Those are written for the lay person, so, but the same principle applies to a medical assessment. You need to make a diagnosis. <clears throat> if they're concussed, you need to then get them off the field appropriately and safely, uh, where they can be formally assessed and then uh, monitored over time for recovery. 
Thanks for you know sharing your 15 years of practical experience as a team doctor here as well. And this is for the junior doctors, and uh, we'll get to the world experts in dealing with team sports uh, in the next podcast. So really, we've done the immediate things. Um, the pocket scat, although it's for lay people, is useful for the quick um, assessment, and we've got to be clinicians is the basic message that I'm hearing. Mm. And then... Uh, in terms of investigations, just recap the investigations and the return of play for the junior doctors. So you just touched on the fact that the balance mechanisms have come in with a bit more evidence now and then the neuropsychological testing. We're just framing this for the junior doctor. Um, the player is going to come and see me in the middle of the week and uh, what should my approach be and how do I decide how aggressively to investigate um, this patient, uh, this player, Paul? Well, this is where the the SCAT itself offers some very specific recommendations here. But basically, your assessment is going to be a clinical assessment. Um, so recording symptoms and brain function is, is going to be mostly what you do. There are some uh, red flag symptoms to watch for. And again, these are written down on the fourth page of the SCAT form. Um, things like headache that's getting worse, um, persistent drowsiness, um, continuing impairment in orientation, vomiting, um, unusual behaviour, seizures, focal neurological signs such weakness or numbness in the arms or legs um, and so forth, all of which would indicate that there may be something more important or um, something that needs different management going on. Remember, you know, concussion can mimic a number of other conditions um, where you have intracranial pathology and so really it's a diagnosis of exclusion in that regard. We wouldn't normally do a CT scan for somebody who's got an uncomplicated concussion, but certainly if they're not recovering or have any of those sort of red flag things, you'd be very um, aggressive in, in pursuing the imaging particularly um, to rule out other pathology. If you've ruled out other pathology with your imaging, then you're really left with um, following people clinically until um, they recover. There are situations such as uh, where people have persistent symptoms over 10 days where you might consider some neuropsychological assessment as a formal thing um, or in children and so forth where that sort of advice would be very useful. But for the majority of uncomplicated concussions, they're going to recover in you know five to seven days and don't necessarily need a lot of other investigative um, input. Just to go back to the issue of neuropsychology, um, we certainly recommend that neuropsychological assessment is the cornerstone of management. But remember, a lot of what you're doing clinically as a medical practitioner, measuring mental status, measuring orientation, is part of that neuropsychological assessment. In the perfect world, um, particularly with elite sports or sports at a high risk from concussion, we would encourage all athletes to have a baseline neuropsychological screening test pre-season so that if they do get injured, you can refer back to that during the season to measure their recovery more precisely. Um, most elite sports now are using some form of computerised testing and these are available both on the web as free downloads or they can be purchased uh, as a software um, that can be run on the medical staff computer. There are different sort of cost implications and strategies for both. But I think the key thing is that elite sports and high-risk sports should be using some form of objective neuropsychological assessment. It's important to recognise that given 
community sport throughout the world um, and the logistics of computerised access and so forth, this sort of ideal may not be all, always possible. But I think in the absence of that, then the clinician still has to use their clinical acumen um, and they need to do a thorough assessment of, of symptoms and mental status and um, examine the patients. So the combination of all these th three things um, gives you a pretty fair handle on how somebody's recovering. And you've got to remember that people need to rest to recover and um, return only when they're fully recovered, when they're clinically and cognitively symptom-free. So if there's any doubt, you'd sit them out. How do I decide whether the patient needs it? If I'm not dealing with the elite team and uh, the situation I've got those resources, so this is in the community setting, how would I, as a junior doctor, decide whether to, who would I send for neuropsychological testing is the first question, then we'll get into the type next. Um, I think if I was somebody in the community without sort of specific expertise or uh, resources available, then I'd probably keep the neuropsych testing to those people whose symptoms are lasting more than 10 days to two weeks. Um, who are not recovering, basically. As I said, the vast majority will get better, and we're talking, you know, 90 to 95% of people will get better, you know, with five to seven days, that sort of time frame. So the numbers of persistent symptoms or prolonged symptoms um, is certainly the minority, but that's the group where you'd want to either refer them on for some more specific concussion management, you know, somebody, a neurologist or a neurosurgeon who may be an expert in the area, and or for formal neuropsychological assessment. And this is where neuropsychologists have a very important role to play because they can really give you a, a very good handle on how the brain's recovering. In this situation, I'm really talking about a formal neuropsychological assessment, not using one of the computerized tools yourself in that setting. They have a different role to play. But I think if somebody's got persistent or prolonged symptoms more than 10 days, that's when bells will be ringing in my mind about moving them on to more detailed clinical management. Thanks, Paul. And we'll excuse the pun about the bells ringing. Um, <laughs> so that's great. So, you know, in the community setting, if it looks like it's behaving normally, we don't need to jump into neuropsychological testing. But if there are red flags, as outlined in the SCAT, or the patient's not getting better, then this becomes the next step. So, Paul... The hard question um, is if you're going to go for the computerised testing, and I know there are sort of different financial implications here, but you're experienced at discussing this, um, which type of computer testing uh, or, you know, what should I do then? If, if this is someone who's got persistent symptoms, I'm in the community, um, it's not easy to find a neuropsychologist, what, can, what would you recommend I do? Um, it gets very problematic in that sense. Um, and let me say up front that I have no financial conflict of interest with any of the computerised testing companies. There are three or four companies on the market that make computerised testing platforms, um, all of which, all of those have strengths and weaknesses. But the end result is the same. They provide a, a very brief um, neuropsychological assessment of memory and attention and reaction time and so forth. All of them take, you know, anywhere between... 10 minutes and 25 minutes to do. So, But they're not tr a true substitute for a formal neuropsych assessment. Generally speaking, these work best if you have a baseline measure before the season or before the injury has occurred, and then you have using these as a follow-up to measure an individual's return to his own baseline performance. That's where they work best. If somebody hasn't had a test before, 
then you're stuck comparing their results to the normal results for the population. And because there is so much variability in these tests, that becomes a very difficult thing to, to do because if somebody falls outside the normal population, you don't know whether that's because that's just the way they are or whether it's a true abnormality. So although it sounds nice to be able to do these uh, or to have access to these sort of tests, there are some real practical problems in how they're used. And this is something where you may consider seeking some advice from somebody who's more experienced in concussion management. Generally speaking, though, uh, um, I would say that the tests, the neuropsychological screening tests, tend to follow the clinical symptoms. So if you've got somebody who's got symptoms and the test shows an abnormality, that probably fits. The difficulty comes about in, in that the symptoms will recover at some point and the neuropsych tests then take usually a few more days to recover. So there's a period of test abnormality but no symptoms and that's a very difficult judgment decision that needs to be made clinically at that point about whether somebody has recovered enough to return to activity. So as I said, that's a situation where neuropsychologists and sort of experts in the management um, you know, can provide additional support for the clinician. But as a rule of thumb, if you're going to consider using a neuropsychological screening tool, then I reckon the way to do it is to, to test your player's baseline and then use it to recover them down the track. The, the most easily used tests are available for free downloads on the web and generally cost anywhere between 2 and $5 US per athlete. Um, for the test. So it's not super expensive, but um, if you organise your office and your, your team management a little bit carefully, they can be done for quite reasonable costs. There, having said that, there are some other programs which are very expensive, um, which have whole different cost implications. I'm not trying to be David Frost here or anything, but um, you know, just practically then, someone's in the community and they want some names of programs um, you know, that, that were discussed in Zurich. So I'm not asking you to rank them because I suspect the data aren't there to be able to rank them, but which, are the, which is the ones to choose from uh, that people would be, should consider? Um, there's... Um, broadly speaking, there's three programs out there in the marketplace that are widely used. One's called Impact, one's called COG uh, Sport um, in Australia. In the US, it's known as um, Concussion Sentinel, and the third one is Headminders. Um, two, two of those, Impact and Headminders, are US-based. Uh, COG Sport is an Australian-based product. There are some other programs, older programs. There's a military-based program called ANAM and so forth, which have been around for a long time in that setting and have also been used in sports. So um, all of those programs have websites um, which people can go to and have a look at the information uh, available. And there are many of the um, principles of those organisations, the shareholders and the or the stakeholders and the offices of those organisations who present um, papers at various meetings around the world. But they all work. Um, they all have a role to play. In in one sense, it really doesn't matter which one you choose, as long as you choose something, if that's going to be part of your concussion management strategy. Um, they have different cost structures and they give different outputs. Um, 
for example, um, Cogstate and Headminders both give a report which includes which is an automated report which gives advice about whether somebody has returned to baseline or not. Impact um, gives a sort of metric output um, which requires further interpretation which can be provided for an additional cost by the company. So people need to go through all those issues themselves um, and decide which of them is appropriate for their situation. I would say however that these tests are not the bee's knees of concussion management. You still need a clinical assessment. You still need um, to make a clinical judgment about the, the patient concerned. All they are is one other piece in the jigsaw. It's a bit like sending somebody for an x-ray. The x-ray alone is not what you base the management on. It's the whole picture. This gives you a little bit more information which helps make the diagnosis hopefully more accurate, but it's not a substitute for clinical acumen. And before we finish on this section, I'm just going to jump back because I, I I jumped from uh, the player on the sideline and your initial care of that player with the assumption that they could come back on Wednesday and be in good shape. But of course, there's the Saturday night issue where you've got to decide whether to go home and have a relaxing evening and just tell the player that they're okay and not uh, you know track them. Now, there's things in the scat about that, but um, you're very familiar with that from your team experience of deciding whether how to monitor a player on a Saturday night if we think of a Saturday game. So what advice do you have to the junior doctor in that tricky situation where they're new with the team and someone isn't great when the game's over and everyone's going and drinking beer? Um, I think the question to ask yourself is, are they recovering or are they staying the same or getting worse? And that's where having these objective measures, measures such as the Maddox questions and the Glasgow Coma Scale and the SCAT 2 and so forth, provide an indication of that. If your player's had an injury and he's recovering, his amnesia's settling or settled and he's got some symptoms which are gradually improving, then that's a good sign, not a bad sign. And those sort of people are usually safe to go home, providing they have an adult who's capable of keeping an eye on them um, in the immediate period after, afterwards. You certainly wouldn't be encouraging them to go home alone um, in that setting where, where they've got no support whatsoever. In, I'm talking about in the event of, of a deterioration that may occur down the track, however unlikely. Um, if, you've, if you're post-match and everybody's packing up and you've got a player who's still quite symptomatic, still am, in amnesia and so forth, then you're really probably in the situation where they need to go to a hospital and be monitored for that period. If you can't do it, somebody else needs to do it. And that can involve all sorts of logistical issues. If you're with a team um, as a first aider or whatever where you don't have a medical person available, then they need to go to a hospital where they can be seen by a doctor. Um, so that, that would be a mandatory approach. They certainly need a medical assessment in the acute situation. This is not something that can be substituted by a trainer or a physio or a, any other sort of um, non-medically qualified individual. One of the other practical problems if you're playing a national or international sport is should they fly? Um, we know that um, hypoxic environments lead to exacerbation of symptoms and so forth. So uh, the answer is people probably should not fly until they've recovered um, uh, at least for probably three or four days. Giving them oxygen on the plane to try and counter the hypoxia can actually be detrimental rather than beneficial. So they probably need to stay um, with the appropriate support 
in the city where they're injured um, until they've recovered sufficiently to be able to fly back. Um, uh, and that can be a real problem sometimes. Um, the only other thing I would probably say from the um, acute situation is it comes back to your familiar familiarity and your own expertise. If you've seen a lot of these and you're experienced in management, um, you can be a lot more confident in doing things. If you're not confident, then you've got to err on the side of caution. And if the side of caution means sending them to the local hospital um, for overnight observation or assessment, then so be it. You've got to be realistic about those things. And uh, one other practical thing I just wanted to deal with was just this, the, the actual stepwise progression, um, because it's my reading of it, it's it's not in the current consensus statement because it was in the one from Prague, right? Can you direct us to that progression where I can find the progression of um, of how I should progress the athlete after the concussion? Um, yep, it's um, it's it's actually in the Zurich statement. Okay. Um, there's there's a table um, in the return on, to play article. Uh, no, in the overall consensus statement. Okay, okay. It's on the third page, page okay. um, 78, 79. It's a table. It's table one. It runs through the, the six rehabilitation stages. The uh, functional exercises would be done at each of those stages and the rationale for it, why we, why we step it up um, in that fashion. That's also summarised in the SCAT 2 document. Um, but again, it's, it's to give a... A cookbook approach to how you'd return somebody to play, um, particularly when they've taken quite a few days off or even weeks off in some situations um, uh, because of their ongoing symptoms before they can get back to activity. We certainly wouldn't throw them back into um, full game play contact sport type situations. Initially, would ramp up their, their um, aerobic activity and then their sport specific activity in a, in a coordinated fashion. Okay. No, thanks for that, Paul. That's very helpful. So in the supplement, um, yep, as you say, on page... Uh, the third page of the supplement, so page 79. Yeah, which will be different in different journals, I think. But, um, ah, true. Yeah, table one in the actual consensus document, which is everywhere, uh, has that yep. uh, standardised return to play protocol. And as you say, on page four of the SCAT 2, um, it's very helpful. Great. Okay, um, I think we're probably good for the, the junior doctor advice. Paul, is there anything else you recall discussing or that you can think of uh, before we close this one for the, junior, um, for the junior doctor and then we're going to come back to some sort of cutting edge issues for the experienced uh, sports physician yeah I, th I think that um, the only other thing I'd say for the junior doctor is our broad recommendation is that nobody should return to play on the day of the injury okay. there, there, are, situ there yeah. are situations in the elite which we'll talk about um, where that may occur but for the junior sort of inexperienced doctor particularly at community level should be no return to play on the day of the injury. Okay, no prizes for uh, a bad outcome there. And one bad outcome will be the end of your career and not something you want to live with for the rest of your life. So good advice, uh, no return to play if you're the junior doctor and there's been concussion that day. Yep. Great. Okay, Paul, well, thanks for your time on this podcast for the junior doctor um, about concussion in sport. And we will move on to a new podcast for the experienced doctor.